really wonderful to have so many folks here. We've really got two uh, segments of the time this afternoon. Um, we first are really grateful to have Daryl Schulte from the navigation team at DMH, uh, who's prepared uh, some information about accessing clinical services at DMH that he wants to talk with you about. And then uh, when Daryl is finished, I will uh, spend some time talking with you about great disability. Uh, and we've got quite a bit of content. We'll get through what we can. I really would love to hear from all of you, hear your thoughts about um, things you've experienced in outreach, uh, questions you have about grave disability. And uh, that'll be the second part of our presentation. Latina, do you have business or some orientation yeah. things you want to go through? Great. Yeah, I just wanted to preface this a little bit um, in that this is the first we anticipate, I think when we talked about it, we thought, oh, we could just do a training on grave disability. And as we started to delve in, realize this is probably not one training. This is at least two, if not three. Um, so this is the first part uh, in the series. And, um, and the reason um, that we are starting with uh, the navigation piece is kind of related to why we're doing the training in the first place. Um, some of you may know that um, the home teams uh, have shifted focus. Uh, formerly known as the SB82 teams, or the DMH homeless outreach teams, and then later known as the HST or homeless services teams. They are now all uniformly known as the home teams, the homeless outreach and mobile engagement teams for the Department of Mental Health. And we are shifting focus, um, I think pretty significantly up to this point, anyone who had uh, a mental illness and, and no matter how um, severe, whether that was moderate, uh, mild to moderate or very severe mental illness, um, most of those individuals were uh, routed to the homeless services teams or HST um, for connection to mental health services within the department. Uh, and we worked to try to help those teams fast track uh, a connection uh, to the outpatient services. And then we also created, I know through the leadership um, from uh, LASA and, and, uh, um, and with uh, Colleen and Victor and uh, Susan with Housing for Health uh, and Maria Funk expedited a, um, a referral process into a homeless FSP for all of the outreach teams. Um, as home is shifting gears, we are turning our focus really to specialty mental health, which is what the department I think is really good at in working with people with severe mental illness and severe impairment. And to that end, that will really be the target population for the home teams going forward. And we'll be talking about what the referral process looks like and how we you know, manage that workflow between the larger E6 uh, countywide strategy. But the first thing that, that we need to kind of understand is what is the difference between uh, the population that we were working with previously and the population <laughs> we're working with now and that is really people who are gravely disabled or gravely disabled adjacent as a direct consequence of, of the mental illness that they are uh, living with. 
um, and also need to work with all of the teams to help you better understand and navigate this mammoth of a system um, known as DMH, since the, the expectation is that we won't be taking on everyone um, in the same way that we were previously. We'll be taking on your most difficult cases, the people you're really having trouble um, engaging and are you know, really impaired by their mental illness. But in order to still get those people that need help, help, uh, it's imperative that you understand our system and how to navigate our system. Now I'll start with saying that we're not backing out completely. We're still here to, to support you. Um, and we'll you know, try to make this transition as easy as possible for all, all parties um, involved. But we think that the first step is, is to help you better understand our system. Uh, and the, you know, the scope of our system and the different services that we provide. And then from there to start to paint a picture of what grave disability looks like. Again, this is a preliminary um, training to take a look at that. In the future, we'll be looking at uh, everything from assisted outpatient treatment to conservatorship and how those all relate and tie in to um, the work that the home teams will be doing. So that's kind of a, the long and the short of why we're doing this training today. And we'll be doing uh, some you know, related trainings in the future. And I would like to, to thank our, our partners at UCLA for uh, making this happen. And, and for Daryl Solte, who's the service area navigator for service area two, service area navigator extraordinaire for uh, his willingness to step up and, and provide um, some guidance today on how to navigate our system. So thank you so much to all of you for being here today. And I hope you find the information useful. And I hope you will give us feedback on what helped, what you need more. With that, I'll turn it over to you. Feedback is very important. Thank you very much, Latina. Um, we really try to learn as we go. We work very hard to try to improve. And as Latina mentioned, this is just the first part. So I'll tell you more as we get into the GD training, but there'll be some additional components. So the things that you don't hear about today that you really want to know more about, um, we'd love to hear about that. We'll have an evaluation link at the end so you can go in to uh, enter some feedback through the evaluation. It's come up already in the chat. And just to confirm, we're recording today's session and we'll have it available. So for people who could not participate today, they'll have a chance to review it in their own time. We're also going to deliver this content again and uh, train on this same topic uh, if we need to at another time going forward. So you'll have access to this information in the future. So uh, Daryl, I did hope you could start us off uh, I know you have a lot you want to tell us about navigating services at DMH, different kinds of uh, 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 strategies for uh, getting access to DMH services for clients you're working with in outreach. Um, are you ready to go, Daryl? Okay. Can you hear me? We can. Yeah. Okay. So I've been on mute um, most of the time, and it was... Not to put it on you, Beth, but it was on mute by the host. And I couldn't unmute myself, but it just unmuted. So. That's because you're so exciting, and we just <laughs> wanted to wait for the anticipation to build up. Oh. So <laughs> that's actually because, and this gives me an opportunity to make sure everyone knows Joe's name, Joe Mango. If you end up with any 
technical problems. You can't hear, your video's not working, something goes wrong technically while you're in Zoom. You see his name here, Joseph Mango, in the chat. And everyone knows how to get into the chat. It's the, the bubble at the bottom. It says chat. You can open the chat box. You see Joe Mango there. If you click on Joe's name, let him know privately any technical challenges you're having. He'll help you out. And uh, I did... I did mute you, Daryl. <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll unmute you now. We, uh, because of the recording, because we're recording this, sometimes we uh, mute everyone and then just unmute the co-host when they're ready to present. Um, Daryl, I have your resource sheet. And if you'd like, I can share that on the screen. Would you like for people to look at that while you present the information? Yeah, I think that would be great. Okay. And, and do, do people also get a copy or... I know there was a last minute revision, so. I have the latest revision. I got it about 30 minutes ago. So we can make sure to email that around to everyone on this call and also to E6 leadership. Sounds good. Does yeah. Sound good, Latina? Yes, that, that sounds good. I mean, it's the same version. We just, yeah, it, it's just as in a PDF form. So yes, if we could send that out, that would be great. Okay. So um, thank you, Latina. As Latina mentioned, I'm the service area to adult and older adult uh, navigator. And I am involved in this project because Latina, my former boss, um, asked me to, to put together a one-page uh, resource guide, I guess, that could be used by field-based teams that may not uh, be necessarily DMH connected. And so um, we put this one page together and uh, we're going to go over it today um, and hopefully it will help clarify a few questions you may have about our system and help guide you a little bit in the future in terms of making referrals for folks you're going to meet in the streets. Um, Latina, as far as the teams that are on the call, I know the home team, uh, some of the home team folks are on the call. and. It's E6 teams as well. Are there other outreach teams other than E6? E6 really describes the, the strategy as a whole for oh, okay. countywide outreach. So it's lots of teams. It's, it's the various teams that um, uh, the um, MDT teams that um, contract with Housing for Health. Okay. Um, it's, it's the broader outreach strategy. So there are several teams on this call. Several teams. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so I'm going to. We don't go see we don't see the sheet up yet, Beth. Do you need me to put it up or? Ah, uh, oh, there we go. Okay, now it's up. Okay. And let me make sure it's the most recent. Yeah, it is. Okay, good. Um, so essentially, I'm just going to go through um, the page, uh, going from top to bottom. Um, I know in communications with Susan Spinelli uh, and with Latina that um, there may be opportunities or, or perhaps folks would like to, home team supervisors perhaps, or Latina or Susan, may want to take some opportunity as we go through this to maybe discuss some scenarios or some, some real life situations that the home team has um, experienced in the field that may help 
um, the E6 uh, teams on this call. I don't know if we still want to do that. Do you know? Sure. As, as you go through, um, I, I can chime in, and, and we certainly welcome any input from any of the participants uh, in the training that wish to add something to the chat or that, that you'd like okay. to Okay. Or then, Colleen or Susan, please. Um, I know you're both on. would love your, your input as well. Okay. And I know also that a lot of the E6 team staff that are on this call have experienced um, a variety of different things in the field that they can probably relate to as we go through these, these, this form. So I'll start at the top um, with our, the little level of need table and with the emergency situations. Um, so these are folks who, and I, I know I, I I understand Beth is going to do a training afterwards on gravely disabled. And I think um, that categorization as well as danger to others or danger to self um, categories would fall into this emergency um, level of need category. Um, so folks who are acutely suicidal or homicidal um, and at risk of immediate harm. And these are situations where you would want to either call 911 or the access line. And those are the two numbers you will need to have at your fingertips ready to call for either PMRT or for a SMART or a MET team to be um, involved in your case. Um, when you call 911, make sure, and you're calling because it is a police case, make sure that you uh, inform the, whoever's on the other line, the 911 dispatcher, that you do have a, that you think it's a, that you work for an outreach team and you believe it's a mental health situation that will help them hopefully um, dispatch the right people, i.e. either a smart or a met team that would have mental health support on that team to, to your, um, to your situation. The access line would be for the non-police calls that you would like to have a field team come out and assess your, your, your uh, individual. Um, so those are the two numbers for these emergency cases that you really need to have at your fingertips. I added in the DMH website information and, and really the, um, and hopefully you have, or if you don't, that you have um, a shortcut on your phones to our website. Um, when you go to the face page of our website, there's a button at the top right that says get help now. And really, like, that button and the resources that it will link you to would apply to any of these level of needs that you may deal with. Um, there are various resources. Um, through that link, there's suicide uh, hotlines. There's a text. There's a uh, crisis text line. Um, substance abuse hotline. A variety of different numbers that you may um, be able to utilize uh, when you're dealing with folks on the street. Um, can, I, can I interject a little bit, Daryl? Yeah. So I just wanna, um, so Daryl is gonna go through the three level of, of needs as you see on the left hand um, side of the screen, emergency, urgent or high acuity, routine appointments and prevention services. So on the emergency side, I see we, we did not and we should have um, 
gotten rid of the acronym SMART and MET, so I'm just going to give a little bit of a, a lesson here. Um, so um, SMART is our LAPD um, DMH uh, team, and I wish I could remember what the acronym is, um, but, but please forgive me. Um, uh, mental, the MET is our sheriff's portion of our DMH and um, sheriff's, sheriff's officer uh, team. Those are essentially compose our law enforcement teams and, and basically it is, a, it is a mental health team, a team that is really designed to assess people that are in mental health crisis. And there is a DMH clinician um, uh, paired with a, uh, a sworn uh, law enforcement officer. Um, we have those, as I said, in LAPD, which is our SMART teams. We also have MET, which is our sheriff's teams. And we also have those teams in various municipalities, you know, smaller cities across the county. You know, the county has a smaller, I believe it's like 18 smaller cities within the county. So like Hawthorne, San Fernando have, have their own police departments. So we have uh, similar law enforcement teams in those, in those areas. I want to specify that the, the law enforcement teams are very unique. Although they work with the Department of Mental Health and the clinician is a Department of Mental Health um, employee, uh, the department does not directly dispatch those law enforcement teams. And I hear that a lot from um, teams on the street or uh, parents even who say, you know, I don't want, I don't want just regular LAPD PD to come. I want for LAPD to spend, send one of those mental health teams that I hear about. Um, the issue with the law enforcement teams is that A, they are deployed uh, when there is um, an issue of danger. That is when they're called. They're generally not called for a person who is, is suicidal, sort of possibly suicidal that we could get help for in some way. But they are the person to call, let's say if there's, um, the person is psychotic and potentially going to engage in bodily harm. Um, that would be a 911 call. That would not be a PMRT or psychiatric mobile response team call. And we will get rid of those acronyms. I'm not sure how we didn't um, on this round, but we'll make sure when we send it out to get rid of those. Um, so that's a 911 call. And the thing that you should know when you're calling and, and you can request, you can say this person is psychotic. They really need help. I know they're doing this because they haven't taken their medication. And that may in fact be the case. However, um, our law enforcement teams are considered second responders, not first responders, meaning that LAPD or the Sheriff's Department, whoever you are, whatever jurisdiction you are in when you make that 911 call will be the entity, the law enforcement entity that dispatches. And they will, excuse me, always dispatch patrol first, meaning a regular patrol team will come first. They will assess the situation. They will determine uh, whether or not the situation is safe enough for our teams to come in and, and, and assess. Um, or do they need to engage in, um, you know, uh, placing someone under arrest or, you know, um, kind of uh, mitigating the situation in some other way before they send a secondary team. Sometimes it works out that they do, in fact, send our, our law enforcement teams, and sometimes it doesn't. But irregardless of, of what happens, I just can't stress enough that if you feel like someone is going to be harmed, even if you know them to be psychotic, 
even if you know that they have a history um, of mental illness, it is important that 911 is the resource that you call and not um, PMRT or the Psychiatric Mobile Response Team. Because PMRT is not an emergency response. We are crisis response, but we are not emergency response. So I know that some of you um, may have called PMRT in the past and you've been waiting and waiting um, and it's taken some time for, for the team to get there and maybe even more time to kind of wrap things up and get the person transported to a hospital. That is because we are considered crisis response, not emergency response. There's no, if you call PMRT, sirens are not gonna come blaring and we are gonna send the first available team um, to that response. And we try to get them out as quickly as possible but, but again, not crisis response. So I just want to distinguish that, make sure everybody knows law enforcement, dangerous situation, 911, and that's what dispatches the team. And you need a general evaluation, someone's psychotic, they're not doing well, you feel like they need to be evaluated to go into a hospital, but there's no, um, no situation where somebody could potentially be harmed. That, that person you can call um, PMRT, that access number, the 800-854-7771, and that is a 24-hour um, line. So I, I just wanted to, I'm sorry, Daryl, didn't mean to be so verbose. <laughs> there's a lot, uh, yeah, I just there's a lot of blanks to kind of fill in with, with this information. Yes. Uh, and just to follow up, SMART stands for System-Wide Mental Assessment Response Team. Thank you, Daryl. And as far as the MET teams go, the mental evaluation teams for different jurisdictions, there's a full list on our website. And there is a brochure through our Emergency Outreach Bureau that has all of that information. Um, um, can I, there's a question about what the PET teams are. PET teams are um, psychiatric emergency teams, and those are teams that we contract with um, a private entity, like, like generally like with a hospital, that we give the hospital, um, we designate uh, someone in their hospital, like a private hospital like Northridge, we authorize them that if somebody comes through their ER, they can place them on a hold, and that you don't have to call PMRT. Okay. Um, so moving through the, the table of, of need. Well, uh, sorry, yes. could I interrupt with just two more questions from the chat that have to do with this? Um, so one question is, when we call the 800 number, the access number, who exactly is being contacted? And is it, is it the case that that access line number is not for PMRT? Um, and then a second question, what specific qualifications does the mental health professional assigned to the law enforcement team have? So Access Line recently automated their system a little bit to, and in addition to that, have added staff uh, added resources. Um, and the automated system has three options. It's in the middle of the document actually. Um, describes the three, the, three, the three options you have when you call into access line. And hopefully this will help expedite your call a little bit. Um, 
So you'd be if you're if it's a an emergency in the field, you would be obviously pressing number one, and and at that time you will speak to a clinician, to one of the OD staff. Um. I'm sorry, I didn't get the other question, Beth. Um, to be clear, so to be clear, that access line number is for PMRT. Yes, that is for PMRT. Um, second question, uh, is it preferred that home team contacts PMRT versus a team member who is designated? No, the expectation is if the, you have a designated, and by designated, those of you who don't know what that means, that means a person on the team who has been um, authorized by the Department of Mental Health to uh, place an application to, to hold someone for observation for psychiatric reasons against their will. Um, if you have someone on your team, uh, Amber Lee, who is LPS designated and part of the home team, the expectation is that they will do their own evaluation, not contact PMRT. Um, if a full-on crisis is happening, then should we call 911 instead of PMRT since 911 will get to the scene faster? I, I would say yes, absolutely, especially if there's danger associated and you need somebody there like immediately. That's always going to be a 911 call as opposed to PMRT. Um, each time our E6 team calls the access line, they tell us they do not serve homeless clients and that we need to call home team. I'm sorry, hold on. <laughs> and that we need to call home team. We have been told that this is COVID-19 precaution, but we have encountered this issue several times in the last few months. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Um, Elise, uh, I will certainly bring that to the attention of the deputy that oversees access. That is not true. Um, that PMRT should re be responding um, if there's a call for support for a person who's experiencing homelessness. That is not the job of the home teams. Um, however, as I said, if we are out and we are assessing someone, we will place them on a hold if that's appropriate. Um, from my short experience in the field, when LAPD arrives, it's a hit and miss in terms of them actually helping uh, the scapegoat. Um, I, I will say that that's, that's accurate. We are, we are trying to build better relationships um, with LAPD, with your general officers. And again, that's, that's the reason, as I said, um, our mental health teams uh, that are uh, our law enforcement teams are dispatched as second responders, not first responders. So part of the reason it's hit and miss is because um, they're always going to dispatch um, a, uh, a uh, regular patrol first and that regular patrol assesses the, the, the scene. We are working actively with LAPD and the other law enforcement jurisdictions to talk about how we coordinate better um, and how we work better together, both in terms of, of helping the, the teams throughout the E6 strategy um, throughout, throughout the county, but also in, in providing support to the home teams when the home teams call and say, you know, they encounter a situation that, that didn't look dangerous, that wasn't like didn't necessarily rise to the level of 911, 
when they assess the individual, but there's some concern that the person is not gonna get on the gurney or there's gonna be some resistance at the point that we write a hold. Sometimes we will ask for law enforcement to come and assist in those situations. We're actively working uh, with law enforcement right now to, uh, and our, our, the deputies and our law enforcement teams to uh, better sort of um, solidify the relationship and who does what and um, to, to develop some better coordination in that, in that area. Um, yes, the slides will be shared. I don't know if I missed anything, Beth. There was the one other question. One other question way up at the top, what specific mental health qualifications does the mental health professional on the law enforcement team have? Is that typically a social worker? Yes, uh, it's it's, it is a licensed clinician that is on the law enforcement team. So it, it might be a licensed clinical social worker. It might be a licensed uh, marriage and family um, therapist. And I don't believe we have any mental health friends that are part of the law enforcement teams, but it, there, there might be. I know that PMRT does have some um, psychiatric nurses that they employ as part of uh, PMRT. But I believe all of the clinicians, all of the cl clinicians are licensed that are on the, the law enforcement teams um, for sure. And they're either a, a marriage and family counselor or licensed clinical social worker. And LPS designated, for sure. And LPS designated, for sure, yes. I think I got all the questions, right? Did I? Well, there was one final question, then, Daryl, we ought to let you finish where you were going. But there's just this one question here. When we submit a request for PMRT, who actually comes out? Are there instances where the PMRT downgrades the request to a DMH outreach worker without having a licensed clinician come out and assess. I believe this happened to request we submitted last week. Um, do you want to answer that, Joe, or do you want me to answer? Um, I feel like I'm talking too much. Well, um, so when you submit a request for PMRT, it is, um, there is no law enforcement involved. It is, it's going to be two, two individuals, one of which will be a uh, designated <laughs> that will uh, conduct the evaluation. Sometimes it's two clinicians, sometimes it's a clinician and a paraprofessional that come out together. And, and there's always a person who does the assessment and, and submits the application and the paperwork. And then the other the other party arranges for hospital bed, transportation, um, et cetera. Um, you know, during this, this period in COVID, things are a little, um, a little different than they, they generally are. Our department has taken um, a, a stance of, you know, whenever possible, we try to mitigate the, the crisis, uh, you know, uh, with the person and try to figure, you know, things out and, and follow up uh, to make sure the person is stabilized. But PMRT is still dispatching. Um, I know of um, no situation when they are sending uh, someone who is not PMRT in lieu of responding to the request for services. Um, that, that's something that I am not aware of. I, I do know that they're working very hard 
to um, screen the calls very carefully when they are dispatching because of COVID, that they are dispatching teams when, they, when it's deemed appropriate. And if it's uh, a situation that they feel like they can support the person uh, within their home or in some other way that they really are trying to um, mitigate uh, as much face-to-face -face contact as, as possible. And, you know, in part, that is to, to make sure that the, that the emergency rooms are not um, overflowing. Uh, and, you know, there are certain precautions that have to be taken if someone's COVID positive and they show up in an emergency room, it basically shuts the emergency room down. Um, so they are trying to mitigate those kinds of situations as much as possible. But they should not just be sending arbitrarily somebody else to take a look at the situation. Right. And I, I also want to say, because I don't think we've addressed this, that just because you call the access line and you speak to uh, one of the ODs um, and you're hoping to have PMRT come out to the field to do an assessment, it is really up to the OD that you're speaking to to determine that with your input. So you may not have a team dispatched. That, that's very possible and you've probably experienced that. Um, and in that case, what may happen is they will make an electronic referral on behalf of, of your clients to, uh, could be uh, an outpatient clinic, could be an FSP referral, but they will, uh, instead of sending out a team, make a, a referral through our uh, in-house electronic system on behalf of your clients. Uh, my guess is you've experienced that at some point. And I don't know if that's what Nicole was kind of getting at with her question. Um, but that does happen. So the question um, I see uh, from Sam, what is the normal response time for PMRT? I, I don't know that there is a normal response time. Um, the truth is because it's, it's a dynamic situation. Um, it, um, it really depends on the number of teams that we have on, um, on at any given time in a particular area. And then there are uh, variables that we cannot control. For example, uh, Los Angeles traffic, or uh, the person um, is a flight risk or a confrontational risk and we need to get LAPD on scene before we do anything, or the ambulance time. Um, I will say um, calling in the morning for a team, um, generally the, the, time, the timeline for getting somebody out is, is faster because the teams haven't been um, assigned um, uh, calls at that point. Usually um, we, we work from 8 a.m. Uh, to 2 a.m., uh, seven days a week, including holidays. And usually that window where we're not being uh, deploying people, um, sometimes there are calls that come into the access line because the access line is 24-7. Sometimes there are calls that come into the access line after 2 a.m. asking for a call, but, but mostly calls start up, you know, first thing in the morning. So um, that's a really good time if you, you need somebody dispatched. I know it's not always doable, but, but um, to get a quicker response, a more predictable response, um, that would be the time. And what is OD? Um, forgive us if we're speaking in acronyms, just swat us on the hand and say it. So OD is the officer of the day that, that uh, Daryl was referring to. 
and the officer of the day is the person that accepts the call on the access line um, to, to screen to, to determine whether or not we're going to send a psychiatric mobile response team. So I, for the remainder of that table, we have the urgent high acuity uh, category and then also routine appointments and prevention services. Um, and I know that the handout has, is, is posted for you to look at. And I don't know, we don't need to go through all of the indicators, I don't think, but just briefly for the urgent situations, you're looking at more severe to moderate symptoms and perhaps a medication evaluation would be beneficial for your client. Um, and then for the more routine services, um, you're looking at milder symptoms, um, short-term treatment for prevention services perhaps, and just general maintenance with medication and maybe a little bit of case management. And for both of those categories, um, you're gonna, this is where the navigators kind of come into the picture that um, if you haven't used any of the service area navigators in the past, I think they'll be a great resource for you. Um, you can still use the access line, uh, particularly for referrals to an urgent care. And in that, in that case, you're looking uh, urgent cares, uh, you're going to utilize the urgent care for, for medication evaluation, first and foremost. So if you think that that would be the most beneficial um, service for your clients, and it's not an emergency case, you may want to contact the access line to get a referral to an urgent care, a DMH urgent care. Um, so, and yeah. for those of you, I just wanted to, again, Daryl, I apologize for butting in, but um, I don't know that everybody knows that the Department of Mental Health has um, psychiatric urgent cares in the same way that you go to urgent care when you have, um, well, not today, but if you had flu symptoms a year ago, um, <laughs> might be, you might have gone to the urgent care because um, you don't want to, you know, um, fill up the uh, emergency room or your it's you know your doctor is not available. Um, the department does offer psychiatric emergency uh, urgent care services, as Daryl said, specifically for the needs somebody who ran out of medication um, and it's not you know critical. It's not an emergency situation, but they do need medication before things go awry. Um, or someone who's never started on medication and maybe it's going to take a minute for them to get an appointment in a, in a outpatient clinic setting, um, which Daryl will talk about in a minute. Um, that would be one resource that you could start with is to get them connected to an urgent care. They would get a same day uh, medication evaluation and get um, started on medication that day. And then they would um, um, help them get an appointment in whatever the most appropriate outpatient um, setting is for them in terms of the region where they are for, for follow-up care. So, um, I also, aside from, I, I want to speak about the navigation, navigators and, and kind of what their role is um, in terms of helping you link um, folks to services. I do want to just highlight again our website on our website, although it's, it's a link that is more difficult to find uh, these days than it was previously, I'm not sure what happened to, our, to the front page of our website, but we have a locator service on our website and the URL is, is on that form. And essentially that's, uh, that's um, a platform that 
allows you to find services for any age group uh, in the county um, simply by putting in a zip code or a, or a city. Um, you'll get a full list and map location of, of different clinics um, in the area that you're, that you're in or, or looking for services in. Um, it's a great tool. It's a little tricky to find on our website, but if you, if you use that URL that's on the form, you should be able to, to get right to it. And you can do a search for any type of service. Um, you can also do searches based on languages and, and age groups as well. Um, as far as the service area navigators go, um, call these folks if, you, if you're having any difficulty um, getting information about resources or clinics or services. Uh, the navigators can help you with that information. They can help you link folks to clinics, particularly if um, you want to link somebody to an outpatient clinic or to uh, a full service partnership program. Full service partnership programs are, are really our, our most intensive uh, service for our really most vulnerable and acute clients. So these are programs that are completely field-based. They're 24-7. The case managers have small caseloads, so they can really focus on, on, on the more difficult clients that we bring into full service partnership programs. Um, so your navigators can, can provide you all the information you need about those programs, about the providers, and how to how to link um, and how to make referrals, and so they can be linked to full ser full service partnership programs. Um, the navigators can also, uh, and this is something I think that uh, would will be important for you in the field when you're encountering folks who, based on what they're saying, based on some of the information you may have about them, you believe that they may be already linked to a DMH program please call and, and you don't know what that program is or you need additional information, please call your navigator, your local navigator to um, have your client checked in our system to see if they are currently linked um, to any DMH program. We often will see referrals come into our offices for folks who are already linked. So um, I think Calling your navigator in those situations can, can help you avoid some additional work um, in those cases where folks are linked. We can provide you with um, the clinic and the case manager contact information. So you, if you need to, you can reach out to, to that client's current DMH case manager right away. Any questions about that? Okay. Daryl, I saw um, one question. Uh, this goes back to PMRT, actually. Um, maybe a, a question for Latina. Are we required to stay through the entire process, or do we leave once PMRT arrives? Okay, I'm not really, uh, I'm assuming this is coming from one of our um, our teams that is not DMH. I'm assuming that's where the question is coming from. Um, so, th so the answer is, is no. Once PMRT is on scene, they will, they will handle the situation um, and see it through from um, the process of evaluating the person to the point that the, pro the person gets um, hospitalized. I think that that's sort of the technical answer 
Then I guess the, the question is like, what, what makes the most sense? Like if it's a client that you're working with, you're, you know, part of your regular outreach, um, you might want to know, um, you know, um, kind of what the plan is. You might want to know that the person was hospitalized, um, you know, where the person was hospitalized. And if we're working, you know, with AB 210, you know, the, which is our umbrella for our outreach services uh, or homeless services, then, you know, we could provide that information and maybe you could follow up with that client. So the technical answer is no, once PMRT is, is on scene, they will handle it from beginning to end. However, um, there might be a reason that you want to stay, whether it's knowing what the next step is, or also just if you have a relationship with that person, um, it's much, it, it's helpful if you have a relationship with the person and we're, you know, working with them, they've never seen us before, um, and we're, you know, evaluating to go to the hospital, you might play a critical role um, just by virtue of the fact that you know the individual and whether or not this is a smooth transition or not so smooth transition. So um, I would just discuss it with the, the team that, that shows up before you say, hey, I'm out. Um, just kind of, you know, let them know um, that you're, you're going to fade back and um, kind of, you know, so that everybody's in communication would be my recommendation. Okay, um, FSP, another question. Do they provide street-based mental health services and FSP program? Y yes, they, they should. I, I don't know, Daryl, do you want to speak? Daryl is our FSP guru. Do you want to speak to that? I don't want to. Sorry, I was muted again. <laughs> There's background noise, Daryl, so I'm muting you, but try to unmute. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sure. Um, so, I, yeah, and I just, Denise, I think it was asked a question about an urgent care and service area four, and I just want Thank to you. mention that, yes, there is at least one that I know of, which is Eastside Exodus on Marengo Street. Um, and the SB82 funds that were that were created and initially the first program that those funds funded were, was actually what is now our home team used to be called SB82. That, um, that bill is also gonna fund new urgent cares in the county. And I don't know if Latinas um, can speak more on that, but I know there's, there are plans that are uh, in development and I'm sure there are probably um, programs that are in development that may open shortly um the plan with the plan being to have urgent cares in, in every service area at least one urgent care in every service area so i'm not sure how far along those plans are but i know that is part of um what came out of sb82 they're in progress you know some sites are coming online sooner than others i think mlk is up and operable we have all of you um i don't know where all of you stands right now I haven't been involved in that development uh, of late, but, um, but you're absolutely right. So as far as the question about FSPs, um, they do provide street mental health. They are completely um, field and office based, although the expectation is more field than office. Um, like I said, they are 24 seven. If you're dealing with an FSP client, you don't need to call PMRT. You don't need to call the access line. If you know the FSP that may be working with that individual, you can contact the FSP directly 24-7. Um, 
And no, their their job is not to link people to services. Their their job is to provide intensive mental health uh, services. Uh, Daryl, a question for you. Um, uh, can you clarify the hours for the access line and during what hours of the day it's it's closed or automated was one of the questions. Uh, my understanding is it, it just became automated. So in the past, when you called, um, you would reach a human and now you'll get an automated system that will direct you to the appropriate uh, person within the access center uh, help you out. There's four seven people are there four seven. Okay, so automated at the beginning, and then you should reach a person 24-7, correct? Um, important question here, Daryl. Um, if E6 calls the DMH navigator to check if their client is in an FSP, enrolled in an FSP already, is that a HIPAA violation? Uh, no. A HIPAA violation for the navigator to share that information with the E6 team? No, not if we know who you are. You are a covered entity. You are working with right. DMA to, to treat folks. And no, that's not a HIPAA violation. Thanks for that clarification. Care coordination like that is, is fine. Uh, um, someone's asking about homeless FSP. Um, I can speak to service area two. I know our one program is at capacity and a lot of those referrals are being shifted over to regular FSP um, for assessment for appropriateness for regular FSP programs. I'm not sure about other service areas, unfortunately. Um, there's a question. Go ahead, Daryl. Sorry, there's a question about FSP in the Antelope Valley. Yeah. And we have, I think there's five FSP programs in service area one right now, um, including, uh, actually, I don't know if, I'm not sure about Palmdale Mental Health or Antelope Valley Mental Health, if they've, if they've up, um, started FSPs at those two DMH directly operated clinics. I think. I do I, not believe they have. I no. We don't have any directly operated FSP programs in that area that I'm aware of. Okay, so all contracted programs. Yes. Meaning that they, they're not, um, those FSP programs are not run directly by the County of Los Angeles. Instead, the county gives um, a, a private provider money to uh, provide services. Uh, in that area. So I believe Tarzana is one. I don't remember all of them. Daryl probably does. Um, but we, we receive um, FSP services, but we are not running them directly by the Department of Health. Mental Health, right. Mental Health America is the largest program in, in service area one. Um, there's a question, Latina, about um, E6 teams bringing folks to clinics. Um, or it looks like possibly just trying to make an intake appointment and the clinic's either giving pushback um, or if, they, if the E6 arrives late with their clients um, to the clinic, 
the clinics make it a little difficult, I guess, to squeeze them in. Mm -hmm. Do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I, I can say that this is certainly a problem even, uh, you know, I think Ramona can attest to even when um, for our HST teams trying to get connected to the directly operated clinics. And it is something I'm committed as a deputy to work with our clinics on. I mean, the, the truth is um, none of us are lacking for work and the same is true in our outpatient clinics. So um, often the way that the you know, it, it becomes critical that, that things are handled, like that appointment times are kept so they can, um, you know, manage the volume of people that are coming in. But we also understand that the population that, that the teams that work under E6 are managing is, you can't, it's not predictable. It's a very dynamic situation. So um, that is part of the reason we want everybody to know about the urgent care center, right? Because the urgent cares, um, you know, um, I'm sure they're like for most of them, there's a cutoff point, like all urgent cares where they're not going to accept new patients after a certain hour as they get closer to closing, but it doesn't require an appointment. They basically triage. And so you could get somebody started on medication straight away and then get them on a, a follow-up appointment for ongoing care, as I said. Um, and, and I am committed to working with our directly operated clinics and contractors to to um, see if we can smooth out the process a little bit for, uh, for our partners um, to get them connected, especially since we're making this transition. We, we will have to support one another to make sure those clients that are less acute, that you can get them the help that they, that they need uh, without having to jump through uh, fiery hoops. Um, there's a question about referring someone who is already connected to mental health to FSP. And I just want to say to this diamond um, that you, anyone can make an FSP referral. So whether they're connected or not, if you feel like they would benefit, you can make that referral. Um, we can make sure that the form, if you guys don't already have the forms, we'll get them out to you. There are fax numbers on those forms that you can, you can send the referrals to. Um, Ideally, the referral would come if it's a if it's a DMH clinic that they're connected to. Uh, ideally, we would we would prefer that the FSP referral comes from the clinic. Um, I mentioned earlier we have an electronic system; it just makes things a lot easier. Um, with that being said, anyone can make an FSP referral. And I also want to say there's another question about homeless FSP. Um, so the way the county, the way the department, I mean, is running FSPs, um, and there's going to be some changes, I believe. I'm not sure how close we are to having some additional transformation done and, and some, some changes to uh, the FSPs. But right now we have a few different FSP um, categories. Um, there's the regular and the forensic FSP and, and those programs do go through the service area navigators. Homeless FSP is centralized with our housing department uh, downtown. So the navigators, at least at this time, do not have anything to do with the homeless FSP referrals. Um, so I would suggest uh, if you have a question about homeless FSP, you can reach out to your navigator and they, they can connect you to the right 
the right people within our housing uh, division. Um, if you don't know who those people are already. So, um, but yes, we, we're not involved uh, a whole lot with the housing FSP. So it's, it's hard to, it's tough to really answer specific questions about that program. I also want to mention AOT, which is on this forum. Um, AOT is, is another intensive mental health 24 seven field-based program, a lot like FSP. We go uh, back to the top of the form so they can see the AOT. It's in the, it's in the high acuity um, category on the right side, on the right column for who to call. Um, there are special referral forms for AOT. Um, AOT is another FSP type program that is not funneled through the service area navigators. That is also centralized um, downtown. Um, and we're not, um, we're not completely as a navigation team. Uh, we're not very involved with AOT. We can certainly answer as many uh, questions about AOT to the best of our ability. We can get you to the right people if you have questions about AOT or, or if you think someone's an AOT client. Um, we will also send out the AOT referral forms to you guys so you have them. They are different from FSP forms. And along with that information, you'll have contact information for AOT. So the AOT number is on the, on this access service form. Um, you can call that number directly. You can also call your navigators. Um, so I think are there, I haven't looked at the, at the questions that came through, but I think that's probably everything for that top table. Well, can I speak just a little bit and we will go into greater detail. This is why this is going to be more than one training. I had no idea we would have so many questions on this section. I thought, I think we thought this was going to be 15 minutes top. Um, but I, AOT will have a direct link to the home teams. Um, they're all coming under kind of the same uh, house. Um, so when we're dealing with someone with a higher acuity, they will have a sort of a, a direct connect to assisted outpatient treatment. And assisted outpatient treatment is, is a similar program to FSP. The, the fundamental difference is that we can petition the court to have the court um, order someone into outpatient um, services. So Wendy's mentioning that she's had some pushback uh, from AOT when trying to refer folks. Um, and I know Latina used to be over this program she can maybe speak to. I know they do have a very, a more formalized um, assessment process for their referrals. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, AOT is governed by statute and the statute uh, indicates who can refer to AOT. So it is very narrowly defined. It has to be an adult family member of the, of the individual, uh, a clinician that is directly treating the individual. So within the E6 strategy, like an MDT clinician uh, could theoretically uh, qualify for referral for AOT, but someone else on that team would not qualify because they're not working with that individual um, on an ongoing basis. Um, and law enforcement can also refer or the administrator of a psychiatric facility for the person or emergency or hospital 
where that person was, was submitted uh, or admitted. Um, it is completely governed by statute, so we can't get around that. Um, the statute indicates who can and cannot refer. Um, and answering Nicole's question, um, we do have nurse practitioners on some of our field on the home team and as well as nurses on FSP teams. Um, our nurse practitioners do prescribe medication. Uh, I'll just say that that is a new um, addition to the home teams. That's part of the evolution that we're talking about today. The move from um, HST or SBD2 to the home teams and working with more gravely disabled individuals. FSP has always had the capacity to prescribe um, in, the, in the street and they're working directly with the individuals that are enrolled in their programs. And so similarly, um, the home teams will now have a prescribing capability. We, we have that now. Uh, we have nurse practitioners and um, psychiatrists working with the teams and um, we have on-demand um, psychiatry for the individuals that the home teams are working with and that um, the, the teams can access the psychiatrist remotely using FaceTime or another program that we, uh, a video chat kind of program that we have um, called VC, that when they come across, you know, again, it's a dynamic situation, so we never know when you're going to run into the client that you've been looking for, that you need to get them medication, um, that the teams can utilize technology to get that psychiatrist or the nurse practitioner on. Um, and we also have nurses in the field now that we didn't have before who can work with us to administer medication on a regular basis to, to a patient in, in the strip. I don't know if this is part of Nicole's question, but many of our uh, clinics and urgent cares um, in the DMH system have both psychiatrists and nurse practitioners available for medication um, services. Um, so the, uh, to go through this, to kind of finish up with the form, um, the access, accessing DMH services form, um, the, the list of navigation numbers are there for you. They are, to the best of my knowledge, the most up-to-date numbers um, to reach any of the navigation stuff in your service area that you're working in. Um, below that section, there are some additional programs and phone numbers that may be of use to you, including our court linkage program. Um, you can call court linkage for, um, as noted, uh, community reintegration programs, um, AB 109, which is another program that's kind of similar to FSP um, for jail releases, and also uh, MIST program, which is our, um, oh gosh, Latina, help me with the M. I get them mixed up sometimes. MIST? Yeah. Is that what you're asking about? The yeah, mis yeah. Uh, misdemeanor, incom misdemeanor incompetent to stand trial uh, is an individual who has been deemed um, essentially the, to make it simple that they don't understand due to a mental health condition, they don't understand what they're being charged with. And so they cannot stand trial. And that can happen for misdemeanor, missed, 
or it can happen for a felony fist. Right. So if your client uh, mentions any of these programs, you can call the court linkage program number and hopefully they can direct you to the right people um, to help you. Um, additional countywide services are listed below. Um, these are not necessarily, uh, well, the school threat assessment and response team isn't really um, a program, a gateway program to get into services, which is really what this, this form was kind of about, was to give you, and there are programs within DMH that are not on this form, um, because we wanted this form to kind of be a guide to, as a gateway into services. Um, but those other numbers may be of some use to you, uh, public guardians phone number, um, child welfare division, if you're working with families with small children, uh, may be very useful to you, and, as well as the child abuse hotline. And then um, we've added the patient's right, rights number as well. Um, if you're dealing with somebody who you have determined is a DMH client who wants to file a grievance, um, we, are, we openly provide this number to any client who wishes to, to pursue a complaint of any kind. And I think, is that about everything, Latina? Ramona, do you have anything you would add? Or Latina, final thoughts? Um, I don't know if Ramona wanted to say anything. I, I will just say it's, as you can tell, uh, it's a pretty magnet um, system. And as, as Daryl um, sort of indicated, we wanted this to be like sort of an access guide. There are many programs that are not on this sheet that are part of the DMH larger system, but we wanted to provide um, contact information for access points uh, into the department. And as we move forward with future trainings, I'm sure we will be reopening this material um, to help people become familiar with and, and access the various um, services that you need as you're uh, conducting your, your street outreach work. But we welcome questions. Um, Ramona says, I am muted. Great job, Daryl, you're awesome. <laughs> uh, the clinics are aware of how difficult it is to get people experiencing a homeless um, in when they have appointments. Um, and we, you know, as I said, I am committed to continue to work with our, our clinics around that. Um, it's, it's not always an easy, um, easy thing to navigate uh, just because of the, the sheer numbers of people that come in, but um, we are communicating with the program managers of those clinics as well as the uh, chiefs that oversee those service areas to try to create some more flexibility for the, the teams that are out there um, uh, attempting to navigate. And, and while the home teams will be focusing on this more gravely disabled population, uh, we are still partners 100%. Um, so I, I would encourage you that if you're having trouble for you know, getting someone connected that you believe doesn't rise to the level of, of grave disability and that you could navigate it if, if somebody would just give you an appointment um, or give you some flexibility with an appointment, please let your, your local home team um, 
supervisor know and we can try to work with you to navigate that. Thank you, Daryl. Super helpful. I know everyone really appreciated it and it just goes to show that the navigator in your service area is your ally and your friend and uh, they're, they're uh, a, a great resource for you. So we hope this resource will be useful. Latina, I think I'll just launch into grave disability, uh, the next part of our session today. Sure, and thank you so much, Daryl. You did an amazing job, really, really appreciate it. And there was a question thank about you. how to refer to the home teams. I, I will say we, we are still working on, on that process right now. Um, most of you are working um, directly with your local home teams. Uh, ultimately, what will happen, we've, we've just developed a referral uh, form that gives us the information that we need to, to get from you. We've just developed that. Um, and uh, it is, the anticipation is that the vast majority of referrals for the home teams will come through your care coordination meetings. Um, because you know the clients that you're working with that are struggling uh, the most, um, and uh, it will be a, a venue for you guys to, to share uh, clinical information for the team to either determine this is ours or to uh, assist you with navigating to make sure that person gets connected to services. I'm going to uh, go through this information. I'll get through as much as I can in the time that we have. There's no need to rush, and we will come back to this content as we need to. There'll be other sections uh, of this training. So my aim today is an introduction. I want to thank everyone who helped to put together uh, this, this, this training from today and also uh, uh, what will come next. Uh, it's actually very exciting to be able to talk with all of you about the concept of grave disability. If I haven't met you, my name is Beth. I'm a psychiatrist at UCLA, and I'm the director of the DMH-UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership, which some of you have heard about. We do a lot of training for homeless outreach teams. We do a lot of support for the team's uh, technical support uh, around program development. Uh, really a privilege to be able to work with all of you. Um, and today is part one, and I call it Understanding Grave Disability, because really what we're going to talk about today are the clinical concepts that you will need to think about what grave disability is all about and to uh, talk with others on your team about the concept. Next, we're going to have trainings that are probably mostly relevant to clinicians who may be LPS designated, may be placing individuals on holds. Uh, so it'll get a little more technical in the subsequent pieces of the training. Uh, so uh, the aim for today, this is just an outline. Um, it, 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 I'm gonna begin by talking a bit about the legal and ethical context, uh, the historical context around GD. And we'll talk about a case, Hector, uh, and his outreach team, and I'll talk a lot about autonomy and beneficence. Define those for you and think about how they work in tension. 
Uh, and the last part of the training, the second half, really deals with a clinical application of the statutory language around grave disabilities. So we'll look closely at that. And I would encourage you to use the chat where you have questions. I'm actually gonna raise a lot of questions for you as we go, and so you can use the chat box to answer them. And you can also raise your hand in the participant box if you want to speak and tell us something about your experience. Um, hopefully this will be engaging and can be interactive for you. Um, so why on earth, if you're not going to be LPS designated, you're not a mental health clinician, why should you learn anything about grave disability? Um, really, the, uh, uh, from my point of view, the primary reason is so that you can have a dialogue on your team about grave disability. Uh, decision making about grave disability is always, always, always forever difficult. And it really is best when it's done with everyone on the team involved. Uh, this slide is wrong. It says support every home team member's readiness to engage in deliberation about great disability. It's actually all of you on any outreach team, non-home teams as well. Whether you write a hold or not, your views about GD, grave disability are really very important. So I want everyone to feel equipped to talk about this. And then as Latina mentioned, um, if you're not on the home team, uh, you really want to know who is a potential client for the home team. Who are the people that I might be working with who could use some specialized mental health support in order to access services and housing, and how can I get them to the right, uh, uh, the right home, the home team. So um, I don't know if anyone has thoughts they want to share about what you do on your team to make difficult decisions together. Um, what's your process and why is it important from your point of view? Um, if people wanna weigh in on this in the chat, that would be great. Um, uh, maybe you've got a morning meeting every day and difficult things come up and you have a chance to dialogue, or maybe not. Maybe you feel like you work really on your own and sometimes you have to contend with very difficult decisions all by yourself. Um, feel free to comment in the chat. We're gonna come back to this issue as we go. Um, Joe, you know, I'm wondering if people can interact verbally, if there is an easy way. I know we probably, with 250 people, probably can't unmute everyone. But for sure, if you raise your hand in the participant box, uh, we can, we will be watching to see and we can unmute you then. That might actually be the best strategy. I know it's a little slow, but if you can raise a hand or um, uh, uh, raise a hand in the participant box, or, or sorry, also in your video box, so that we know to unmute you. I think if we unmute everyone, we might just get a lot of background noise, although maybe worth trying at when we next have a break. Let's give it a try, see how it goes to unmute everyone. Um, we'll have another break to dialogue in, in just a little bit. Um, this slide is just intended to indicate for you historically where uh, the, the LPS law uh, fits. So um, 
before 1963, um, uh, if you had a mental illness, uh, really it was up to a doctor or your family to decide whether you should be hospitalized, really determined by what the doctor thinks is best and what the family wants. Not very many limits, actually, on uh, how long those hospitalizations would last. Not all of them were long. We have a rather erroneous idea of what state hospitals were like. Uh, a lot of the visits to state stays in state hospitals were not very long, but it was the case that it was really up to family and to doctors. And what happened beginning in the early 1960s with the federal law, the Community Mental Health Center Act, which funded community mental health centers, uh, and began to limit the amount of money going to state hospitals and institutions. Uh, with the Community Mental Health Center Act, there began to be much more of an attention to the kind of uh, the value of delivering mental health services in the community for people not in hospitals, but where they live in the community. And this move toward community mental health was assisted in 1965 when Congress passed Medicaid and it allowed for not only social security payments to individuals living in the community, but uh, helped to limit the funds that were going to state hospitals and began the process of, uh, it didn't begin the process of the institutionalization, it accelerated the process, which had, had started even before 1965. So the LPS, uh, the Lantern and Petra Short Act of 1968 is a California state law uh, passed in 1968 by these three uh, 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 assemblymen, Lanterman, Petrus, and Short, who uh, uh, wrote the law. And it expanded the system of community-based mental health centers and aimed to provide uh, timely support to those in need at reduced cost to the state. And uh, the LPS law really had a number of goals, and I've listed six of them here. Uh, uh, keeping people in the least restrictive environment possible, uh, uh, supporting public safety, protecting individuals with mental illness from victimization by uh, uh, through criminal acts. Uh, so that's where it, this LPS comes from. Uh, that's why we talk about LPS. It's named after this state law. Uh, in California only, other states have different versions of this. So when we think about LPS, uh, what I'm going to start with is the ethical context for decision making around uh, 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 grave disability in particular. Now you're aware if you put someone on a 5150, uh, that could be for grave disability, it could be for danger to self, it could be for danger to others. And we're really going to focus specifically on grave disability because for reasons I won't go into, it has a different trajectory. And I just want to make one correction. Daryl mentioned that for grave disability, if you want to uh, have a response from uh, an emergency response for grave disability, you could use the law enforcement teams. And I think generally that is not, uh, not correct. If you have an individual who's acutely homicidal or suicidal, those law enforcement teams, 911, can be uh, uh, critical. Great disability often is a more indolent, kind of uh, less acute and immediate danger, and there's more time to uh, identify a response 
it doesn't necessarily require a 911 call uh, or a law enforcement team. Uh, and we're going to go through that a little bit. What do you do if you're working with someone you think might be gravely disabled? So even though the mechanism, the 5150, is similar to, DT, uh, to danger to self and danger to others, uh, great disability is a little bit different. Uh, and that's why we're going to spend some time with it. Um, Can I just add, Beth? Yeah, thanks, Latina. Um, that, you know, for law enforcement and the Department of Mental Health, we're all governed by the same Welfare and Institutions Code, 5150. Um, however, it is true that often um, we come across patrol that feels like um, DMH somehow uh, it has, is operating under a different law. So it tends to be the case that when we're evaluating someone for grave disability, that certainly is, you know, as Beth indicated, uh, tends to fall much more under the Department of Mental Health. And again, if we remember that law enforcement's primary job is to enforce the law. And so they, they are quite adept and ready to get involved when there's a situation where someone might be harmed, um, that they're like on their toes in that way. However, when someone is, is sort of chronically going downhill and deteriorating um, secondary to a mental illness, um, they are less able to inform that. And as a matter of fact, the teams that, all of the teams, you know, um, you uh, are critical in helping even the home team make that call because many of you have had ongoing interaction with an individual on the, st on the street and you can help us better create the picture of grave disability by giving history and context in a way that that's necessary to make that argument. Where, you know, if we are just for the first time meeting that person, much like LAPD, we can't necessarily make that call based upon what we're seeing in this moment in time. So I, I just wanted to add that, sorry, Beth. No, that's great. And it's a very important clarification. And it's a reason we're going to spend some time on this. Grave disability is complicated. And your ability to articulate for law enforcement or anyone else you're working with why you think grave disability is an issue is really, really critical. And you will sometimes hear law enforcement arrive at the scene and they say, well, we have to see if they meet our criteria. And there's only one criteria. There's only one set of criteria for grave disability. We all work within it. Um, and part of what we're really working on here is to get us all thinking in similar ways about what the law actually says what the language is and how to apply it. Um, so this, these, these concepts, autonomy, beneficence, they may feel a little abstract, but I hope that uh, you can begin to work with them a little because I think they help us see that grave disability is a decision like many of those that we make every day in working with our clients. And autonomy just means we all have a right to make our own choices. We all have a right to self-determination. And beneficence just means we're doing good things for other people. Um, and the clients we work with have rights. They have the right to receive both good care and to make their own choices. They have a right to autonomy as well as beneficence. And with that, I want to tell you about Hector so we can look at how this plays out. Hector is a 63-year-old man with a heart condition, methamphetamine use, 
and unpredictable behavior that sometimes causes conflict with police and local businesses. He's lived on shelter for at least six years in Santa Monica. You've been working with Hector for a month. You've made amazing progress with him. Uh, he's had two ER visits and one hospital admission, and he left the hospital against medical advice um, in, in two occasions. He's usually very quiet with you. He provides you very brief answers, but you've been able to apply for benefits and you're reactivating his debit card. After his last hospitalization, even though he left against medical advice, you managed to get him into a hotel room, but he was kicked out after 12 hours for using drugs in his room. And now two weeks after leaving the hospital, sorry, after leaving his hotel room, you receive information that his deposit is he's gotten a deposit in his account. He can use his debit card and access his money. You go to see him and you find that he's not doing very well. He's been incontinent. He says he's not been able to take his heart medications and he's still kind of angry about being asked to leave the hotel. And he doesn't really know if he wants to go back to a hotel. You kind of look at him and you think he doesn't look great. Maybe I should try again for a hotel room, but he's not so sure he's interested. So my question for everyone here is, in this kind of a scenario, are we, are we going to find another hotel room for Hector? Would we give that another try, do you think? I think for the most part, we would. We'd give Hector another try to find a hotel room. Uh, and even though he's not all that interested, we might try to talk him into it because we feel like we have an obligation to do what's best for Hector. And he doesn't look like he's doing so great. And if we can get him indoors for a little bit, help him get cleaned up and organized, we have a sense he might be doing better. That is beneficence. That is my obligation to try to do well for Hector. As Odessa says, yeah, I think we should at least try. Yeah, that's a beneficence point of view. Now, others might say, Hector has a right to self-determination. He is telling you he doesn't really like this. He doesn't want to go into a hotel room. It didn't work out for him last time. It's reasonable for some people to say, no, I'm not going to find him another bed. He's telling me he doesn't want that. He has a right to self-determination. Okay, so the next thing that happens, you decide that you are um, going to talk to Hector about a hotel room. But as you're talking to Hector, Christina walks up. Hector once described Christina as his girlfriend, but you've encountered her before. She's very savvy. You think she takes advantage of some of the vulnerable individuals who live in the neighborhood near Hector. So you're a little worried about Christina. And Hector looks to Christina to tell him what to do, whether he should go to a hotel room. She really encourages it, and you need to set a plan for him to transition into this hotel room in the next couple of days. So your question is, do you tell Hector in this moment, as you're trying to plan with him about moving into the hotel room, do you tell him his debit card's reactivated, he can get money out of his account, and uh, maybe you're a little worried as you're there that Christina might overhear talk about his debit card and his account. What do you do? 
Uh, Amber Lee has a question about Hector. Does Hector have a mental health diagnosis? You are not sure whether Hector has a mental health diagnosis. He seems uh, kind of quiet. It's hard to get information from him, but you don't know much more about his history. So do you tell Hector he has money in his account? Okay, so again, beneficence is just the idea that you're gonna do good things for Hector. You're trying to make him uh, better, well. Uh, you you wanna feel at the end of the day like you've done a good thing. Now, um, in this situation, telling Hector about his money, you kind of worry that he might not be able to, somehow Christina might get a hold of it, he might be vulnerable. There are situations in, in which you might say, I'm doing good for Hector by keeping this information from him temporarily, not in his best interest to know at this time. Thank you, Lavanda. That is a Again, just one option here. That is a way to verbalize this choice. Not in his best interest right now to tell him, tell him privately, safely, uh, tell, tell him in a way that makes him not vulnerable. Now, there's an alternative point of view. This is Hector's money. He deserves to know it exists. He deserves the dignity of risk, the dignity of taking his money and doing what he wants with it. And if that means Christina, his girlfriend, is going to have some of that money. That's Hector's choice, and that's what we're here to support. So that attitude of autonomy, of Hector's right to self-determination, supporting his own choices, uh, leads you to tell Hector about his money. Um, uh, 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 Josie asks, is there a harm reduction bed where he will not be thrown out for using? So what I love about the chat here is many of you have been in a situation like this. You see risk to limiting autonomy. You're going to come up with some creative strategy where you can get enough of doing good for Hector, as well as just enough of supporting his right to have his own money. Um, you're going to try to find a compromise between doing good and giving him as much choice as he can have. Could he have a payee? Is there a person he trusts that I can get, I can do, do good for him by, uh, yes, limit autonomy a little bit, maybe, maybe there's a supportive person. Um, so my point with these examples is simply that it's actually pretty common that we are in tension. Sometimes the doing good for a person limits their autonomy and sometimes uh, limiting the autonomy is a, is a way to do good for a person. This is a kind of common scenario that comes up in clinical work, uh, maybe especially with our clients, uh, pretty frequently. And we all kind of move along what we call here the neglect overprotect continuum. You're, you're sometimes over on this end where uh, it's her choice. We're support, supposed to support choice. Let her do what she wants. Now, the danger on that side is neglect. Other times we're over on this other extreme, we can get her to do the right thing, arrange things for her. So she has to do it the safest way. The danger on this side is that we overprotect. And we all usually try to find a middle ground here where we're not uh, overprotecting and we're not neglecting and autonomy and beneficence, supporting choice, but also doing good they're balanced in the middle. So we return to Hector's story. 
Hector moves to a hotel room and you go to a care coordination meeting and you speak to just chatting ahead of time with the police officer, you know, in the neighborhood, he says, where's Hector? You say he's been placed in a hotel room. The officer says, oh, I thought he might be in the psych hospital because he told me the other day that surgeons removed his heart 20 years ago. He said he carries a solar powered heart in his backpack. This is what the police officer tells you at care coordination. And those words stick with you and you're shocked. Uh, Hector never said more than a few words to you at any time. You had no idea he would think something so nonsensical. Um, you're not really sure what to make of it. Uh, you know, you might have some thoughts about how this belief or idea might have been driving his behavior, leaving the hospital, staying on the street. You just don't know. It's brand new to you. What a shocking thing to hear. And so uh, what do you do? goes back to this question of what's your process for making difficult decisions on your team. Hopefully what you can do is bring this up with your supervisor and get some time with your team to talk through how to make sense of Hector's situation given this new information from the police officer. Um, let's stop there. Um, because I'm interested in the few questions that have come up already. Um, uh, decision making uh, on your team. Um, what uh, uh, what 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 you uh, what you do when you have to balance complicated uh, 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 issues for clients to support them in the right way. Uh, I'm interested in whether this scenario rings true to you whether this feels like it could, uh, could have happened, and whether, what other thoughts you have about Hector at this point. Amber Lee says, as a result of a mental disorder, 5150. She's heard uh, this talk before <laughs> and is prepping us for the next section. So she's beginning to think something different is going on with Hector. He's got this idea, it seems like a delusional idea, that he doesn't have a heart and he's got a solar-powered heart he has to carry around. Okay, we have pulse meeting daily, and this is one of the things we do is discuss client cases. That's wonderful. Um, I don't know who this is or what team it's from, but I'm assuming a plus meeting, a pulse meeting is kind of a, a daily, uh, a morning check-in. And this is a perfect thing to do with everyone. Check in about new information you have about folks. I just, I just wanted to say that kind of where we're going with this is looking at whether or not this would be a person who would who we would consider gravely disabled and interesting to see kind of you know things turn as we start to talk about whether or not there's a delusional process going on um, and you know that the point of Beth's you know beneficence really at, at, at the end of the day is really determining whether something is good for a person, like are you doing something good for a person? So is it a good idea to not tell him that he has money? Are you violating his rights in some way? And at what point, uh, what's, the, what's the deciding factor uh, in terms of sharing that information? Yeah, 
Perfect, Latina. So two questions in a way. Do we think that Hector is gravely disabled? Uh, let's leave that question open and we'll come back to it. Um, what I do in the next section is give a little guidance about how to answer that question. I don't know yet, actually, uh, just given this information, whether Hector is, whether I would say personally, Hector is gravely disabled, but it's a question on my radar. I think the other question is, is Hector a good client for the home team? Uh, could the home team help me with Hector? Another way to say that question. And again, I, I think the answer might be yes, might be no, but that's the second thing that comes to mind for me at this point about Hector. So, grave disability. Uh, this slide just reiterates what uh, I presented in the first section, doing good and supporting self-determination are sometimes intention. Now, I think we can all say as a society, we value autonomy. We value that individuals have choice, that they're in charge of, uh, of their own fate, of their own day-to-day -day decisions. We, we value autonomy. I mean, it actually, uh, once you start to think of it that way, uh, quite profoundly, we value autonomy. And I think it's also very clear that the 1968 LPS law prioritizes autonomy. Part of what it was responding to was this idea that a doctor and your family could just put you in the hospital and you would have pretty minimal uh, tools to challenge that as an individual. Um, and, and so, LPS was an attempt to correct that, to make sure that we uphold uh, patients' rights, individuals' rights, uh, uh, as much as possible. And so what LPS does is carefully define when we can limit an individual's autonomy. And it indicates that there are times, rare cases, where symptoms of a mental illness might mean that in order to do good, we need to limit choice. We need to limit autonomy. So that's beneficence greatly outweighs autonomy in certain situations. And so it's getting to that, uh, I, uh, being able to play with that idea in order to do good, I do need to limit autonomy in this situation. That's the decision-making process around GD. And grave disability is one of a very small number of examples in the medical field where we uh, can limit someone's autonomy in order to help them manage their health, uh, in order, again, to sort of do good for them. Uh, you could call this paternalism, it is one kind of older word for this. You could also call it uh, beneficence, doing good for someone uh, in, a, in a unique situation where they can't do good for themselves. Um, so there are times where we decide that someone lacks uh, decision-making capacity. We talk about capacity. That really is about making a particular medical decision. Uh, we also have this category of incompetence. That means that an individual usually has a severe cognitive impairment like dementia, and they're no longer competent to manage uh, their, uh, their health or their resources. Grave disability is a third example of this where we have, uh, as a result of a uh, mental illness, uh, we limit an individual's autonomy. 
So uh, I'm going to walk through this slide and then I'd love to hear more chat about this issue. Um, so we've all heard some not great ways of assessing whether or not someone is gravely disabled. Uh, he's not gravely disabled because he's eating and drinking. Um, he's not gravely disabled because he's engageable. I can talk with him. Um, he's not gravely disabled because he has a plan to get home. He's here in the ER. He's telling me I take this bus to there. Uh, you know, he's fine. Um, he's not gravely disabled because he knows how to survive on the streets. Um, that's one category of just too casually uh, deciding that someone is capable uh, and safe to take care of themselves. Um, there's this other category of things we often find ourselves doing where we feel uh, helpless and hopeless about what to do when we're really worried about someone. And we say, well, there's no bed for him, or the ER is never going to admit him, or the police won't be able to get him into the ambulance. Um, and I just want to put those to the side because really uh, the goal first is for all of us to get comfortable thinking about what grave, what grave disability is. And let's not worry about the system piece or what happens uh, or where there are or are not resources available. Let's just get clear about what we think grave disability means. Has anyone heard these things before? Anyone heard similar things? Maybe this is also um, kind of the best of our um, uh, uh, knowledge sometimes about grave disability, that uh, it's all that we've heard about it. Uh, so I would also say that the dialogue about this concept is a thing that we're going to uh, try to have more and more. Okay. Okay, so this is actually the wording of uh, the statute. So this is uh, 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 what it says in the law. A grave disability is a condition in which a person as a result of a mental disorder is unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs for food, clothing, or shelter. Uh, so this is the language. And we're going to go through this a bit more so that we can dive into what it means. Um, and what I'm going to tell you framework I'm going to present for you is that we can evaluate grade disability in two parts. Um, we can first of all think about interpreting motives and we can second of all think about assessing an individual's ability. Uh, and so I'm going to walk through what both of those mean. They're both very tightly linked to the language of the statute itself. And Paula asks, what if your first belief is developmental and secondary, possibly mental health? I think Paula is indicating, what if we don't know what the diagnosis is? And we're going to get to that. It's a great question. OK. Oh, this is what I just said. As a result of a mental disorder, that's the interpreting motive piece. Is this situation a result of a mental disorder? Uh, unable to provide for basic personal needs. That's the assessing abilities portion. So we're going to go back through that uh, in a bit more detail. Okay, as a result of a mental disorder, uh, this 
phrase is just stuck in my head. It's a, it's a complicated one, an important one. What does it mean? Uh, my client's condition, is this a result of a mental disorder? Uh, the way I'm seeing him or her right now, this is a result of a mental disorder. Is it caused by, is it due to symptoms of a mental disorder? Symptoms, behavior of a mental disorder. The classic examples of symptoms of a mental disorder that often come to mind when we think about grave disability are these delusions, hallucinations, anhedonia, which is a lack of pleasure, a lack of enjoyment in anything, uh, commonly seen in very severe depression. Amotivation is a symptom of a psychotic disorder. Agitation, we all know what that is. That's uh, when someone's behavior is just out of control. Hypersexuality, other symptoms of mania, Anorexia, where someone is refusing to eat, and a lack of insight is another symptom that sometimes comes up. That's this really useless word you don't need to memorize. <laughs> Anosognosia, uh, a condition of not being aware of uh, the presence of a mental illness. But I think what's important, Paula's point, is really it, you, it does not, you don't need to worry about what the diagnosis might be. And in fact, all of us. We don't know. Uh, we really often can't know uh, when we see someone once. We often can't even know when we see them over and over and over on the streets. Uh, we need a little more time, a little more inquiry. Sometimes it does take years. I myself have been in that situation. I've been following someone for a long, long time. And after several years, my notion of what the diagnosis is changes. So the important thing is here, if you're worried someone might be gravely disabled, as long as you suspect they may have a mental illness, that's all you need. And you might say, oh, I don't know, it might be developmental, might be substance related. Um, it may be that they have an injury, a uh, head injury. It's fine, it doesn't matter. That comes later. Is that clear? I hope that addresses the issue. You don't have to be a diagnostician to determine that someone may be gravely disabled. Okay, so in what way do mental health symptoms shape behaviors? Uh, here we have to get a little bit creative. Uh, I think we know that symptoms can shape behaviors. If someone has a delusional idea, uh, for instance, that they have a, a solar-powered heart they carry in their backpack, that means they've got to make certain choices in order to keep themselves safe, right? Hector's got to be outside, because if he's not outside, his heart doesn't charge and doesn't pump, and then he dies. I don't know, I'm just imagining that would be a behavior that might uh, result from that kind of a delusion. Um, so delusions, of course, are false beliefs that don't budge, really. It doesn't matter what kinds of facts or evidence or motivation or persuasion you provide for someone. Uh, the beliefs are fixed and false, we'd say. Uh, we all uh, fall into some notion we might be able to talk someone out of a delusion. It, it just really doesn't work. We can help them to moderate the impact of that delusion, but the idea will remain. And so if you believe that you're communicating with celebrities, you have a special relationship with certain people, uh, or that you're on a particular mission to do something, that might really drive how you spend your time. Uh, if you believe you're actually not who you are, but you think instead that you're Michael Jackson, uh, or the reincarnation of Michael Jackson, 
that could really shape your behaviors day to day. Hallucinations are hearing voices, uh, and voices sometimes tell people what to do. Walk through that bus, hit that man, run at that, uh, go away now, stay here. Uh, sometimes illogical, completely illogical things that voices are telling an individual to do, and that can drive behavior. Um, so, you know, the other thing I'll see here is that it really can sometimes take a long time to figure out how symptoms are driving behavior. You may not have a very clear picture of that for a long time, but, uh, and because often people experiencing symptoms like this are not very communicative, might not say very much to us. Um, but over time you start to see that there are some behaviors that just seem so unusual, they must be driven by delusions. So if we're at this stage of trying to understand whether a mental illness, uh, whether a, a patient's behavior is due to a mental illness, caused by a mental illness, um, these are the kinds of questions we might ask ourselves. In what ways are symptoms, like a delusion, a hallucination, determining this person's behavior? What ideas are behind this person's behavior and are they reality-based? Are they real ideas or are they based on uh, false false ideas? What's motivating this person to behave as they are? Is the person able to choose something else? So there's a difference between saying, I have a solar powered heart in my backpack. Um, but, you know, I also have other ways of staying alive. I don't really depend on it. Um, but it's kind of nice to have the backup of a solar powered heart. Um, you know, Hector might be able to choose other things, even though he has a false belief. Um, but when someone's beliefs are so rigid, they don't have options. Uh, that's very important. Sometimes behaviors are so bizarre that you can't figure out why someone would do them. Uh, I'll have a photo later that, that gives you a, a good idea for this now. We don't always know. There often can be a rationale we just haven't thought of yet. But there are some times when behaviors are so bizarre that it kind of seems like there must be a, a delusional idea underlying them. Questions, observations about this? Um, I do think it'd be nice to see if you all have some examples of symptoms or uh, 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 delusional ideas that drive clients' behaviors. Examples of that, things you'd like to highlight for us. I have a 78-year-old man that believes he's being tailored by people. Tailored, I'm so curious what that means, tailored. Ah. Tailed, followed, followed by people. Yes, gosh, can you imagine? Um, and who are those people? Boy, wouldn't that be interesting to know? Are they real people he knew in the past? Are they um, uh, aliens? Uh, you know, kind of getting a sense. Obviously, sometimes your clients could be followed by people. Actually, the other thing, Nicole, that you made me think of is your client may use the word tailored 
in a very odd way and might mean tailed. So the language used here can also be very unusual. Um, uh, you know, you've asked him, what, who are these people? And he may not want to say or may feel too nervous to tell you, not sure he can trust yet. Um, a client who sees messages in the clouds. Very interesting. Boy, messages in the clouds. Can you imagine? What if you see a message in the cloud that says, this outreach worker wants to kill you, uh, plans to kill you, uh, is poisoning you. Uh, you can imagine messages in the clouds might really <laughs> interfere with your engagement with an individual. Or even in determining grave disability or considering like this might be a client for home. Like imagine that client sees a message in the clouds that says, I can't drink water for 10 days. Or I can't drink water or eat for the next year, right? Like <clears throat> that message isn't there, right? And it's, you know, the behavior is being informed by a delusional process that could potentially put that, that person in harm's way. A uh, very important point here is the second piece of understanding whether someone may be gravely disabled. Um, if the cloud, if the message in the clouds is don't drink water for 10 days, uh, that's, and, and the individual is acting on that message, uh, believes it is uh, internalizing and acting on that message. That is a pretty classic case of grave disability and a pretty urgent one. Um, I had a client that thought other clients in their encampment were satanic. They use the word devilish. Other clients in their encampment were satanic. You see how that would drive that individual's behavior to do things. So your next chore though here, if you're thinking about grave disability, is, is the second part of really understanding whether because of these symptoms, the individual cannot provide for his or her basic needs, uh, food, clothing, or shelter. Now this could mean they're not able to access it. Uh, they're not ready to use it like the clouds tell me not to drink water, so I won't drink it. It might mean they have tried, like Hector. He's tried going into the hospital, but he can't stay there long enough, uh, perhaps because of his delusional thinking. So re repeated failures to maintain could also fit in this category. So this is where things get very important. Have you seen that the person is able to provide for food, clothing, and shelter? Um, does the person survive only with the help of others? Will the individual accept food and clothing that you offer or ask for things when needed? And is the client unable to make use of your help uh, because of symptoms? Uh, we'll go into that a little bit, uh, little bit more. So these are some things you may have seen. Um, that may indicate it, that an individual is not able to provide for their basic needs. Uh, you may see that they urinate or defecate close to where they sit. Sometimes they keep urine, feces close to their body, close to their head, very unusual thing to do. Again, sometimes behavior seems so unusual, they feel like they must be driven by symptoms. Uh, clients that are uh, naked, not using clothing as 
uh, as appropriate as indicated, wearing far too many clothes. Um, obliviousness to a wound or an infestation, uh, very unusual, right? Quite, quite concerning. Uh, the community, those around him or her are responsible for feeding, bringing food, uh, staying in the same place for a long, long period of time. Rotten food nearby, allowing that to uh, uh, stay uh, stay uneaten. Um, uh, no belongings or many belongings that are very, very unorganized. None of these are in and of themselves an indicator of grave disability, not at all. But these are the kinds of things you might see and might raise the question of whether someone is gravely disabled. So I just want to quickly go through some pictures and then I think I may actually stop there and not go further in any of our content, but come back to this uh, idea of interpreting motives and assessing abilities as the two pieces of grave disability. So here's a photo, I think I just found this online. The individual, I think, not wearing any clothing on his legs um, and seems to have uh, 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 trash, perhaps some rotten food nearby. Here's an individual um, uh, living outside of a store, uh, scattered belongings. I've got a couple of additional photos that show us uh, clothing. So here's a shoe. This is the sole of a shoe and his foot coming out underneath it. Uh, and actually the sole of that shoe just flopped open. It's actually not functioning as a shoe anymore. It's just something strapped to his foot. Um, so that's a good example of clothing that's really not not uh, appropriate. And 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 here it just slumped over a set of belongings. There's uh, food in the back here that people have brought to him, but um, he's not utilizing it. Here's another uh, uh, a woman covered in peanut butter over her face. This is the jar of peanut butter here. Uh, sitting on a bus bench there for quite some time. Um, another indicator that something is just uh, off and uh, worth exploring what exactly that means and whether or not someone like this is able to, for instance, eat peanut butter if one is hungry um, and take care of basic needs. Um, here's another picture we've all seen, individuals staying in one place for a long uh, period of time not moving, immobile. Uh, and so we, we do also wonder about swelling in the legs, I'm not sure, but uh, trash around, uh, uneaten food uh, around. So I would wonder, is this uh, related to uh, symptoms, delusions? Can this person accept the help that we're bringing? Um, is there an option for this individual to move and be elsewhere? Uh, those are some of the questions that come up around GD. Um, these are just some quick examples that I have related to housing um, in particular or access to shelter. And I'll, I'll stop here and invite some questions. Um, examples of behaviors or symptoms caused by a mental illness that directly impact being able to access shelter. Believe signing name to a housing application would lead to arrest. So refuses. Now I'm not talking about a situation where that may be accurate. This is a delusional belief that's inaccurate that if I were to sign my name, I would, the police would come and arrest me. 
Uh, food and clothing brought by outreach workers has to be approved. I can't use them. Uh, there are overseers who approve the food and clothing that's brought. I am responsible, you see this so frequently, a mission. I'm responsible for, for protecting this corner. Uh, the CIA has assigned me here. I can't go anywhere. That would make it hard for someone, right, to accept uh, shelter uh, or resources from you. Um, I can't be in housing because the staff there were in a cult and they held seances to pick residents that they would torture. Um, terribly distressing circumstance and you could see this would make it very difficult for this individual to access housing. Um, really all I want to do in the last one minute we have is uh, elicit other examples that you have and uh, skip forward. We'll come back, we'll do more of this when we have more time, but make sure that you know that when you encounter someone you think may be gravely disabled because as a result of a mental disorder, they may be unable to provide for food, clothing, and shelter. One thing is to make sure you don't avoid them. Avoid avoiding them. Try to continue to engage. It may seem helpless, uh, hopeless. Uh, you may feel helpless, but uh, there, it's, it's important to try to continue to engage. Discuss with others, with your supervisor, as Hector's outreach worker did, um, and, and consider whether this might be a client for home or for a multidisciplinary team with a clinician, just to dialogue about the case and see what you can learn. Are you able to find some history? Is there a DMH history? There are some navigation resources we reviewed at the beginning. Those could be helpful to find out about a history or to see what uh, help might be available for the individual. Um, in the next part of the training, we're going to go back into depth about evaluating grave disability, and we're going to talk about the clinical pathway through LPS conservatorship. Um, but I'd be interested before we stop to see if you have other examples that uh, you'd like to bring up that you've seen or questions you have about grave disability, uh, either in the chat or you can also uh, raise your hand and we can unmute you in the participant box. So we did have a question before earlier in the training about whether there are some potential changes to definitions of grave disability legislatively that might be coming, uh, uh, coming up. Uh, that's possible. Uh, for right now, this is uh, implementation of this particular definition is, is what we're working with. Um, Sandy mentions the same client that sees messages in the clouds also says he knows a lot of property owners. So when I ask him if he is interested in permanent housing, he says no, and it's been a challenge. So her idea may be, oh, sorry, Sandy. Uh, Sandy's idea might be that uh, maybe because he knows a lot of property owners that might not be real, uh, seems to want to say what needs to be uh, uh, said to keep someone away 
And I would say remaining curious about that is very, very helpful. Older male appears undernourished, flies around him, declines services, he's not homeless. So he has two homes, but he's out on the street because he's doing a very important archaeological study. That's a great example. Um, there's a delusion there that he's doing an archaeological study, most likely, and, uh, and, and can't leave the streets because of that. So then the questions really do become, is he able to, despite that belief, accept some help, uh, take care of food and clothing and other needs that he has, medical needs, is he keeping himself safe? Um, important set of choices. Uh, any other examples? Um, Hi, this is Johanna. Um, I just had a question regarding clients who may be displaying signs of dementia or Alzheimer's mm -hmm. uh, and what the protocol is in possible referrals. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a great question. There is a, um, so uh, once we get to a conservatorship, you may have a immediate determination that would be just the same the immediate determination might be that the individual appears unable to uh, care for basic personal needs. And oftentimes with individuals with, with dementia, there also are some uh, mental uh, symptoms of a mental illness. They may hear voices, they may have delusions. You may not be so sure in the moment, is this dementia or is it a psychotic disorder? So sometimes that first step of putting them on a hold for, for grave disability is exactly the same. And then it's the follow-on evaluation that reveals whether this is due to a mental illness or it's due to dementia. Um, if indeed the evaluation does determine it's uh, related to dementia rather than a mental illness, there is a pathway through probate conservatorship that is a little bit different. Uh, so those are some of the things we'll get into in the next um, Training and also Nicole's question here about what role does adult protective services play in this pathway? What, uh, when, when might they be useful? Um, when would we call them? When would they be able to provide an, uh, an alternative or an additional strategy? I think that's an excellent question. I'll, I'll just speak to my personal experience and maybe before our next training we'll, we'll place a call to Adult Protective Services and maybe have them uh, have an expert weigh in or be a part of the training. Um, but generally speaking, um, when we're reporting to Adult Protective Services, there, there's a, generally a, an issue of abuse or neglect um, that, that is occurring. And um, there is another party involved in that abuse or neglect. So we're reporting for, for that, um, that reason, largely. Um, adult Protective Services will um, intervene sometimes in situations like this. But um, largely what we're talking about here is an issue of, you know, back to, to what Beth talked about, like self-determination, um, you know, and whether the decisions that you're making are being made, you know, of sound mind and body, or are you making these decisions because they're being informed by, by a mental illness? Not a question of abuse by another um, 
either you know physically or, or fiduciary abuse or anything of that nature by another individual, but basically looking at a person's uh, mental status and um, whether or not a mental illness is informing what they do or they don't do, which is um, under the purview, as uh, Beth has alluded to, under the purview of the operations of, of the Department of Mental Health. Although conservatorship can either be, um, as Beth said, it could be determined by the mental illness or it can be determined by a, um, a form of dementia. Uh, and we'll get into greater depth uh, in that regard uh, when we do our next training. Um, but I can't say to the degree that um, Adult Protective Services would step in with someone like, like this. Um, has not been my experience that they've been a great resource when someone is kind of engaged in, in self-neglect uh, and, is, and is openly saying that they don't want to engage in this or that because they have a, a strong belief. That's usually when we're called in. So I think we're kind of wrapped up. We're 11 minutes over. 11 minutes over after three. Um, final questions. What we'll do when we start next, we can come back to this category of at risk for grave disability, GD adjacent, this category of clients you might be working with who may or may not right now be struggling, but um, uh, feel like they could potentially become at risk. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll start to talk about that and go through a little more detail about the clinical trajectory I just want to thank everybody for participating. Again, this is the first part uh, in a series that will cover in greater detail what the new population for home team looks like, how you will refer to home team, and the, and the entire breadth of services that we might be able to provide um, up to and including um, consideration for conservatorship. Thank you, everybody. We look forward to the next part. Thank you.